0: Uh, well, good afternoon and merry early Christmas to you. Um, uh, thank, welcome to our 12 p.m. service here at Citizens. At first service, I announced that you know Argentina had won the World Cup, and it, it, the the auditorium erupted in a way that I had never heard in our church before. Um, you know, it's only that Jesus has risen, but you know, I guess I guess Argentina is is uh, important here, but. Um, uh, oh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that. Um, well, today is the last Sunday of Advent. Uh, if you've been with us the past few weeks, uh, we've been in a series called Jesus Through Their Eyes. And uh, we've been using this Advent season leading up to Christmas as an opportunity to revisit the story of Jesus' birth through the eyes of the different characters uh, in the story. And we're doing this because each character, I think, provides a unique glimpse into the significance of this moment Uh, many of you know that um, i mean a lot of you serve in children's ministry so it just feels like babies are being born uh, on the daily these days but um, one of the things i love to do when i go visit families who've just given birth um, is i always ask both the mother and the father what that day was like and i ask them to retell the story from their you know, perspectives Usually a lot easier for the dad, you know, but uh, all, all, all this to say that when, when you hear it from both perspectives, it really gives you a fuller picture of the beauty of that moment of bringing the child into the world. And, um, and so in week one, we looked at this story uh, through Mary's eyes and then through the eyes of King Herod. Um, then last week, we looked at it through the eyes of Jesus' earthly father, Joseph. And then today we're going to look at the story through the eyes of the shepherds and the wise men. And the reason I wanted to do both in the same sermon is that I think these two groups of people provide a really interesting juxtaposition. Um, you could not find two groups of people more different uh, than the shepherds and the wise men. And so we're going to be looking at both Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus as well as Luke's account. Um, it's going to be a lot of text, but... Um, you know, it's never a bad thing to have a lot of scripture in the service. So uh, if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. First, we're going to look at verses 1 to 12. Matthew 2, 1 to 12. And it's going to be on the screen behind me, but if you like to follow along in your phone and you can choose your translation, I'm going to be reading the New Living Translation, the NLT. Okay, Matthew 2, 1 to 12. This is the reading of God's Word. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn King of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, For this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. Amen. And then we're going to move over to Luke chapter 2. And then we're going to look at verses 8 to 20, Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 20. That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph. There was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherds' story was astonished. But Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. Amen. Amen. Let me say a prayer for us as we begin. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. Would you open our ears and our hearts to receive what you would have for us today. We give this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, I'm going to talk about each uh, of these two groups, the shepherds and the wise men. We'll start with the shepherds. Uh, The shepherds were the bottom dwellers of Israelite society. Because we don't live in the ancient Near East, I think we kind of have this romanticized view of who shepherds were. We think about old gurus um, walking peacefully, tending their flocks. Uh, But I don't think we really understand what it meant to be a shepherd in those times. Shepherds were the lowest, most despised social class in the ancient Near East. They were seen as people who didn't have any marketable skills, uh, nobody was saying, I want to grow up to be a shepherd. Okay? You became a shepherd when you had no other prospects or options. You were out in the field all day. You were constantly exposed to the elements. Uh, you smelled like sheep. It was a horrible job. Uh, shepherds were poor, uneducated. They were at great risk of death at any moment. And it wasn't just a physical toll. It was a, a deep emotional toll as well. You know, because of the demands of their flocks, shepherds, they couldn't regularly go to the temple and observe all the different hand washing and cleansing rituals and rules that would deem them clean in the eyes of the Jewish law. And you know, nowadays, if work something comes up at work or something comes up with our kids, circumstances come up all the time on a Sunday, and we have to miss a few Sundays, nobody's gonna say anything. It's not a big deal. But you have to understand that back in those times. The temple was the absolute center of all of life. It was the locus of all activity and belonging, and so without it, you didn't have community. It was a lonely existence. You know, if someone misses church on Sunday these days, I might go up to them and say, "Like rough night yesterday, bro?" You know, and they're like, "Ah, oh, you know, they kind of, kind of, kind of ashamed and stuff." You know, but it's cool. It's cool. You know, no, no one's judging anyone. If you weren't at church for a couple of weeks back then, it said something about you as a person, right? Because it meant you weren't getting proper restitution for your sins because every week you would go and you were supposed to confess your sins and get proper restitution. So it meant there was something up with you. And now you couldn't be trusted. You were dirty. You were full of shame, right? And so this is why shepherds, you know, they, they their testimony wasn't even admissible in a court of law because people saw them as people who couldn't be trusted their word couldn't be trusted if you were a shepherd it basically meant you weren't going anywhere in life okay this is the detail that you absolutely leave out of your hinge profile okay like you know this is the thing that you say after you get married and you're like you know i'm a shepherd you know uh, yeah i feel like <laughs> yeah i said this the first time i feel like you know so there should there could definitely be a job for people who Consult other people on how to create good dating profiles. I feel like you would make a fortune because some people just don't know. They they overshare, provide wrong, bad information on there. Anyway, that's that's another sermon, another day. Okay, Um, all this to say, many people in those times said it was better to be a beggar than to be a shepherd because at least you didn't have to work for the very little you had. Shepherds did not expect much to come from their lives when the whole world has labeled you as unworthy incompetent and incapable at some point you start to believe it right there's so much research right now being done about a significant impact that the labels that were given as children how much that that makes an impact how much that shapes us even as adults okay there, there's you know and they've done so many studies about this and You know even as a parent it's really easy to just walk around and be like you know this is the athlete of the family you know she's definitely the leader of the bunch Um, but but there's there's so many studies being done right now when those people get older they actually start to grow into these labels they actually start these labels start to become reality i'm sure many of us you know unbeknownst to us subconsciously some of the ways we were labeled by our authority figures by parental figures in our lives We don't even know it, but you're like 20, 30, 40 years old, and all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, I've become that person. You know, that has become a reality for me. And the idea is that if you're identified in a specific way your entire life, whether it be behavioral, emotional, even physical, you start to believe it for yourself. You know, this past week... um, I'm sure many of you saw the video of the Purdue chancellor making kind of an off-handed um, impersonation of the Asian language. Um, and I saw a lot of posts about it, and people were understandably very angry. People were sharing it with me. And if I'm being completely honest, I saw it, and it didn't even faze me because I'm so used to seeing that, you know, like I, my whole life, I, you know, like someone would drive up next to me in the car next to me and yell ching chong, you know, and and do this with their eyes. You know, and it it just, like, it it was so commonplace even in a place like Southern California where it's full of Asians. You know, and it just became, I just became so used to it. And as I started to reflect on why it didn't garner as much of a reaction as I thought it would, I realized I had just adopted the label. I had just adopted the stereotype. That was just reality. There wasn't, it wasn't something outside of reality. And so for these shepherds, it's not just that the world sees them a certain way, it's that they now see themselves in that same way. Okay, there's something, there's a shift that happens when your whole life, everyone is saying, you're unworthy, you're inadequate, you're at the bottom. You start to believe in yourself. Okay, so this is the shepherds, but then you have the wise men, okay, also known as the magi. Now, we typically think there were three because of all the songs, we three kings, or, you know, the three wise men, and because they brought three gifts. There's actually nothing in the text that tells us there were three. We don't really know how many wise men there were, but what we do know is that whatever the shepherds were, the wise men were the complete opposite, okay? Okay. These are the people at the very top of the social hierarchy, the richest of the rich. These were men with status who were well-educated, hence why they were called wise men. These are people with privilege and access to opportunities. Shepherds could only dream of Okay, The fact that these magi had the ear of King Herod you know, tells you how powerful and influential they are. If you you remember in the story, they go somehow, they're able to go to King Herod and directly ask him, where is the newborn king of the Jews? The fact that they have that relationship with the king tells you how powerful they are. These were people who were the prophets, the scholars, the priests, the professors. These were people who expected life to be good who expected to be happy and well-fed and secure, who expected to be successful and great. And and I'm just going to take a guess here, but I would say the vast majority of us here at Citizens relate far more with the wise men than we do with the shepherds. But on this one fateful night 2,000 years ago, these two groups of people who could not be more different, who would never be caught dead in the same space together suddenly find themselves walking in the same direction. You know, we see this, you know, even with the World Cup, right? You look in the stands when the camera does a pan across all the stands. There are these, these events or these few moments when you see young and old, rich and poor, you know, people standing, people who are so different, who normally wouldn't do life together, standing together, cheering for their team. Right. I was in Philadelphia in 2008 when the Phillies won the World Series, and it was a big deal because Philadelphia hadn't seen a championship in sports in, like, I think it was over 30 years or something. And if, if, those, if ever you've been to Philly, there's this street. It's called Broad Street, and it's a street that stretches from the north end of Philadelphia all the way to the south end. It cuts through the entire city. And depending on what socioeconomic class you're in, there are certain parts of Broad Street you're told you should avoid, and there are other parts that you should, you know, those are okay to hang out. in, You know, and you have, um, you know, Broad Street cuts through Center City, which is home to some of the wealthiest in the country, and then Broad Street also cuts through other neighborhoods that are pretty rough, that have some of the highest crime rates in the country. But the night the Phillies won the World Series, all of Broad Street, from the north to the south, was lit up in celebration. Young and old, rich and poor, black, brown, yellow, everyone was out. Okay? Uh, a few of my friends went out to Broad Street to celebrate, and we were in a group, and the first person that started to approach me was this huge African-American guy. And he got to me, and he literally picked me up from the ground. So, like, my feet were dangling. You know, I haven't had my feet dangle as an adult in a long time. And he literally spun me around. You know, it was like, it was in slow motion. I spun around. It was incredible. It was amazing. You know, and only a World Series victory could warrant that kind of interaction. Well, this is the scene on the night Jesus is born you have a breaking of every kind of barrier that's conveying something profound about the gospel and the nature of the kingdom of God. The first thing it shows us is that all are broken and in need of hope. All are broken and in need of hope. It goes without saying that the shepherds need hope. right? Their very existence is one of hopelessness and despair. But the wise men... What could the wise men possibly need? They have everything that a person could want in this life. Money, status, success, power. And yet there still must be this nagging emptiness inside, this ache that won't go away. Why else would they be so worked up by the news that a king has been born in Bethlehem? You know, these are people who've chased many stars. they chased many kings, and yet they're still longing for something more. And isn't this so true? That you could have everything a person could want in this life and yet still feel completely empty inside. You know, this week I'm sure many of you heard the news of Stephen Boss, affectionately known by most as Twitch, who was a beloved husband, father, dancer, choreographer, who took his own life. And it's a weird habit that I have, and, and you know, it's the thing that is like, it's, just, it's sad when something like this, it seems like it's becoming a trend. You know, when, you, when you're starting to hear about it so much that you're like, like every week, you know, there's someone who, there's another suicide. And, and a weird habit I have whenever this happens is I, I go straight to that person's social media. Because I'm like, was there anything in there, you know, that, that would give us a sign, any indication that these, this person was going through something? You know, was there any way this could have been stopped? And and literally like clockwork, you know, I go to Twitch's Instagram page, three days before he takes his own life, there's a video of him smiling ear to ear, dancing with his family, getting ready for the holidays, talking about like a Christmas sweepstakes they're having. You would never know. You would never know how could someone who had what by every measure was a beautiful life, feel he had nothing to live for. And you're reminded when these things happen that everyone is broken. Everyone is searching for something more, something beyond what's right in front of them. You know, I think some of us understand this already very deeply. We've, some of us have reached the career goals we've wanted to reach. We got married, we had kids, we bought our dream house, thinking one of these things was gonna be the silver bullet. And yet you know that there's still something missing. There's still like a stomach level sadness that we feel. You know, a book I quote regularly as Citizens is a book by David Brooks, New York Times bestseller called The Second Mountain, would recommend it. And in it, Brooks illustrates life as being a journey through two mountains. And he says the first mountain is a life that's focused on building the ego and defining the self. So you get out of school, you start a career, you buy a home, you begin climbing that first mountain. And the goals on this first mountain are the ones that are given to us, that are endorsed by the culture we live in. So to be a success, to leave a legacy, to, to make your mark, to experience personal happiness. But he says everyone who gets to that to the top of that first mountain, and some people especially these days, get to it really early in life, they get to the top of the mountain and they find that view deeply unsatisfying. And he says it's only when they recognize that there's a second, bigger mountain that's actually their mountain to climb that one can discover life as it was meant to be lived. And he says, on this mountain, we move from self-fulfillment to pursuing a purpose that's bigger than the self. But the most tragic thing about this is that so many spend their entire lives simply climbing the first mountain, not even realizing there's a second mountain that awaits them. You know, if you're not a Christian and it's your first time in church, you know, we want to welcome you. Um, We're glad you decided to check out church or give church a try. I know that, especially in the holiday season, you know, it's a time when people are, you know, they're curious. You know, they want to know what this season is about. We're happy you're here. But, but maybe you're here because you're starting to see the matrix for what it is. Maybe you're starting to kind of come out of that. And the things that, you know, maybe you've experienced some grief or some circumstance that's making you realize that the things that once made you happy and the, ones that satis- the things that once satisfied you aren't doing it for you anymore. And maybe like the wise men your whole life has become this never-ending search for significance and meaning and home. Well, the Bible tells us that there's only one who can fill that void in our hearts, and it's not a person, it's not a job, it's not a degree, because our hearts weren't made for these things. St. Augustine, in his Confessions, has a great quote. He says, You have made us for Yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in You. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Anyone here feeling restless? Anyone here tired of the rat race? Anyone here burnt out and exhausted? This story is an invitation to follow the star that leads to Bethlehem. It's an invitation to come and rest in Jesus.
1: So that's the first thing.
0: It shows us that all are broken and in need of hope. But not only does the Christmas story remind us of that, it also reminds us that all are dignified and welcome in the kingdom of God. That all are dignified and welcome in the kingdom of God. The world of the ancient Near East obviously was a different world than the world we're living in now, but in many ways it wasn't so different. Um, in that time, wealth and power were concentrated in the hands of a few. There was a clear division between the haves and the have-nots. Uh, and if you were at the bottom of the food chain, it was nearly impossible to make your way up to the top. Okay? And what this story tells us is that all those barriers are broken in the manger of Jesus. All are welcome at the table. Nobody gets left behind. In the kingdom of god all are offered the same acceptance the same love the same freedom the same god whether you expect nothing from your life or you expect a lot from your life jesus desires a relationship with you whether you have plenty or you have little jesus desires a relationship with you and it's what i find really interesting is that at the end of this story when the shepherds meet jesus it's not like they go and stop being shepherds. This is how a lot of people view Christianity. You come and experience a relationship with God, and all of a sudden your life will change, and your circumstances will change. It's like a lottery ticket, and now you'll be prosperous. You'll finally get all the things that you desire. But in the story, the shepherds meet Jesus, and they're still shepherds. By most measures, their life circumstances haven't changed that much. They're still in poverty. They're still at the bottom of the food chain. But one experience with Jesus, and it says these same people who once had nothing to live for, they go back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. All of a sudden, these people who had believed the lie that their life had no meaning and purpose walk away with a greater sense of meaning and purpose. You see, a relationship with Jesus doesn't always mean our lives are going to be easy, but when you experience the rest and the peace and the joy of knowing Christ and being known by him, there is nothing you and I will lack. Nothing. Now, some of you, like me, when I first read this, might be saying, well, that's kind of not fair because... So you're saying the wise men got to be wise men and they got Jesus. Shepherds, they only got Jesus. You know, it's like, I think mean, both got Jesus, but you know, I'd, I'd rather be a wise man. You know, some you told me like I could be a millionaire and be Christian, i give me that. You know? And so a lot of times when you read this story, you're like, okay, it's great that the shepherds' life circumstances didn't change that much, but it feels like they got shafted. And to that, let me just say this: I don't believe God plays favorites meaning the invitation to know him is available to everyone. But I do believe God chose particular favor to the weak, to the marginalized and the oppressed. He says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. There's something about suffering and pain that draws us closer to the heart of God. Why do you think God chose to come into this world as a homeless nomad? Of all the careers he could have chosen, why did he choose a blue collar job? Why do you think he chose to be born in a feeding trough? Why do you think he, he wanted it so that the culmination of his life would be the humiliation of a cross? He's saying, I love everyone, but if there's anyone I want to identify with, it's them. It's the discarded, it's the forgotten, it's the overlooked. That's who I want to be identified with. And a a really subtle but important detail in these accounts of the wise men and shepherds is this. The wise men, they see the star from afar. They travel from the east, and they got to jump through all these hoops to get to Jesus. They got to figure out what the star means. They go to King Herod. They're like, where is the newborn king of the Jews? You know he's like you got to go find him they're just they're traveling long distances to get to jesus the shepherds have a different experience an angel shows up to them directly and says don't be afraid i bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people the savior yes the messiah the lord has been born today in bethlehem the city of david and you will recognize him by this sign you will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth and lying in a manger. It's the shepherds who get the details. It's like, you're not going to have to search for him. I'm going to give you a straight shot to Jesus. You're going to go find him in a manger, and just in case you're not sure who it is, you'll find him snugly wrapped in a blanket, right? They get the cheat code. okay? It's the shepherds who get all the details. It's those who were the most down and out. And guess where the shepherds are when they hear this. It's a really small detail, but we see it in verse That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby. Nearby. I had to read that a couple of times. Those who were the most down and out were the closest to baby Jesus. The wise men had to travel far distances, but God was close to the shepherds. You know, the reason why Jesus says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to inherit the kingdom of God is because those who have a lot don't recognize their need. You know, a lot of times I ask people at our church to tell me, what was the most vibrant spiritual season of your life? when you felt most connected to God and others. And I can tell you, it's almost never when things in their life was good. Because after you get your big break, you know, after you finally have your prayer request answered, after you get better or your loved one gets better, or after you get the spouse that you came to the church looking for, you don't need God anymore. And so a lot of times, it's those people who somehow feel disconnected to God and other uh, and others? Ironically, you get all your prayer requests answered, and you feel a longing. But I find that it's those who are in grief, those who know what it's like to lose someone, to know what it's like to be in the wilderness, who always tell me those are the moments when God meant. Those are the moments when I knew God was near. And for those of us this morning who identify with the shepherds, who feel inadequate, unworthy, or useless, maybe you're lonely or you're grieving, I want you to know that this story tells us that Jesus is nearest to you. It's the lowly that the angel shows up to. It's the the shepherds who get the personal invitation to come and see the Messiah. It's the shepherds to whom the angel comes and gives the first proclamation of the good news. And so when we put these two together, when we understand this story from the perspective of both the wise men and the shepherds, we realize that the birth story of Jesus shows us that you and I are not defined by the worst parts of us and we're not defined by the best parts of us. We're not defined by our mistakes, our failures, our inadequacies, though many of us are convinced that we are. And we're also not defined by our success, our performance, or our status, though many of us are convinced that we are. Because depending on which which side of the pendulum you're on, you will either buy into a narrative that says you're completely worthless, or you will buy into a narrative that says you're amazing. And the gospel flies in the face of both narratives, simultaneously humbling the proud and lifting up the lowly. In the Christmas story, we see that even the wisest of men and women at the end of the day are broken sinners in need of grace. But in the gospel, we also see that even the lowliest of shepherds are deeply loved, cherished, and dignified. What do we do with this? Okay, let me just close by saying this. We see it in the story. You know, the coming of Jesus is great news. But what do we do with this news? You know, is is it just news and we just sit there and we listen to it? This is news that demands a response. You know, when you hear the news that you're going to have a baby, I don't know anybody, you know, that, finds out there to be a mom or dad, and just walks away from that news. No, it's news that demands a response. It changes everything. You tell your friends, you begin to reorganize your home, you make a couple trips to Ikea, you start to clean out the closet, you know, you start to rearrange everything in your home to get ready for this baby. It's news that demands a response. When you hear the news that a family member has been diagnosed with a terminal illness, you can't just walk away from that. And anybody who's ever experienced getting the news that their mom or dad or a loved one has cancer can testify to this. In that moment, something that was important to you literally 10 minutes ago isn't important to you anymore. Because it changes everything. You're like, okay, what can I take out of my schedule so I can take care of my parents? You're, like, you're, you're not even thinking along the lines of it because it's news that demands a response. And we see this in both the wise men and the shepherds as they behold the baby Jesus. The wise men come with expensive gifts. We read that they came with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And the moment they enter in this house and they see this mother holding the Savior of the world in her arms, it says they bowed down and worshipped him, And gave their gifts as an offering. They understood that what they were holding in their hands, as valuable as these things were, were rendered worthless in the presence of the Messiah. And so they laid them down as an offering of worship. Now the shepherds, they didn't take anything because they couldn't afford it. They had nothing to give. They went with empty hands. And yet even the shepherds, upon seeing the beauty of the king, leave that place. And what do we read? They told everyone what happened. Those who had money and gifts and resources to give, gave them. Those who had nothing to give, still gave what little they had. It reminds me of the woman in the Gospels who comes to Jesus with an alabaster jar full of perfume, and she breaks it over his head. And everyone at the table is like, what are you doing? That is your most valuable possession. Are you crazy? Like, why would you give that? Why would you break that? There's so many more things that that jar of perfume could be used for. But the woman's like, I'm not even thinking along those lines. Because there is nothing I can give that could possibly repay this man for what he has given to me. She's like, I have is there anything i can give i have this alabaster jar is broken laying it down as an offering of worship this is what worship is it's a posture that says everything i have is yours my time my money my resources it's a heart that says what do i have that i can give to the one to whom i owe my life?" Romans 11.35 says, Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? In this season that can become so consumeristic, can be so much about what we receive, we read this story where you get these people who, they're like, what can I give to this baby? Because of what this baby is worth. And so whether we're like the shepherds, feeling like we have nothing to offer, or we're like the wise men who've been given so much in this life. You know, maybe you're looking back on this year and you're like, I've been so blessed actually. You know, and I have a lot. And God has really blessed me. Regardless of which side you're on, we're called to worship. We're all called to lay down our treasures and our lives because the birth of Jesus demands a response. All are welcome in the manger and all are called to worship. Let's pray. I want to give us just a few moments um, as we invite our brother Wesley up. Um, now I want you to kind of reflect on on who you resonate with in this story maybe some of us, again we feel like the shepherds we're carrying in here some baggage from the past we're carrying in here feelings of worthlessness um and, you know, feeling, like, uh, hopeless about the future. Or maybe we come here today like the wise men, and things are pretty good. You know, there's nothing much to complain about. You know, we're healthy, Our, our loved ones are healthy, job is okay, but yet there's still that nagging, inside of us, there's that nagging ache where we know something's not exactly right where we're still longing for more and I want to just give us a moment to come to lay whatever it is down to lay the parts we're most proud of and the parts we're most ashamed of and lay it down at the feet of Jesus Jesus to be reminded that our, our identity is not in the worst parts of us and it's not in the best parts of us, but in who Jesus is and what he has done. That our identity is that we are loved.